All right, let's, uh, let's get started. Um, we're in the 10th chapter of Mark, as you know, but I want to pick up uh, about the middle of the paragraph 17 through 31. But let's real quickly get the context here in case you weren't here last week. But the previous paragraph, Jesus had held a little child in his lap because the disciples had rebuked him. <laughs> it's amazing. The disciples didn't want little children to come to Jesus, but Jesus really rebuked them and said, it's such of these that come into the kingdom of God. And then the contrast is with this rich young man who says to Jesus, what must I do to eternal life, to inherit eternal life? And then the Lord developed that, responded to that. I love that verse, part of verse 21. He looked at him and loved him, which is uh, such a telling uh, insight into the compassion and love of Jesus, even for someone like this who rejects him and rejects his message, because it says, I am not willing to sell everything and follow you, which indicates, as we talked last week, that he's actually violating the first commandment. Before him, and is before God, he has put his wealth. And then Jesus um, turned to his disciples, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom, and we talked a bit about that. But then I'd like to pick up, especially with his response, children in verse 24, and that's the only time it's used in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's the only time he calls his disciples children. And that word in the Greek language is a term of intimacy, little, little children, not babies, but little children. So it's a term of remarkable intimacy. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And we talked a little bit about that last week, but what, what Jesus is saying there is something I think that all of us in America can understand. Wealth and affluence can lead to the attitude, I don't really need God. And that keeps one from putting faith in him. And then verse 26, they, meaning the disciples, were exceedingly astonished. And the ESV has really captured that well. It's a series of superlatives in the language, but exceedingly astonished and said, then, who can be saved? Now, let me, before I, I look at what Jesus says in response to that, I want to, what I said last, I want, to, I want you to see what's happening. Are there, they are working from a framework that is rather typical today, but it was very typical in the first century. Those who are affluent, those who have wealth, those who are rich, those who have material goods, have experienced the favor of God. They have an inside track. And if you remember um, in the book of Job, uh, that's, we ought to study that maybe sometime, but in the book of Job, uh, Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they are, they are working from that perspective. You're a wealthy man, and because you are in the situation, you did something wrong. You sinned. And that's why God's taken it all away from you. And so they're looking at it from that same answer. Those of wealth have the inside track with God. And so they're astonished. Well, if those who have been blessed by God materially aren't saved, then who can be saved? And Christ's response, I just find this interesting, because you would think Jesus would give a rather severe critique of prosperity theology. I don't know if you know what I mean by that, prosperity theology, that if you know God, you expect Lexus, expect lots of wealth, expect all the blessings, and that, of course, is not taught in the Bible. But Jesus doesn't say that. His response is simply a declaration, a proclamation. All things are possible with God. 
I'm upsetting your worldview. I'm upsetting your expectations. I'm ex upsetting your presuppositions. I'm ex upsetting how you're looking at the world. God doesn't look at it the same way you do. All things are possible with him. Peter then, Peter then responded, and I just love this because I kind of think I might have said this to Jesus. And Peter said, um, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. And the tone of voice that I just used is, I think, the tone of voice Peter had. Lord, we, we've left all and followed you, expecting Jesus to respond, way to go, Peter. You did it. You're exactly what I want you to do. And in a way, Jesus does say this, but look at, look at his response. Truly I say to you, and truly in the Greek is amen. Amen, I say to you. There is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, with persecution, and in the age to come, eternal life. So what is, what is Jesus saying? He's responding at two levels here. First of all, at the temporal level, expect blessing from God. Not necessarily enormous wealth, but expect God's blessing, but also expect persecution. There's a positive and there's a negative. The positive is you will experience the blessing of God, but also expect persecutions. The second level is the level of eternity, and in the age to come, eternal life. And he's reminding the disciples that, and of course, if you, I, I think you know this, but if you know anything about the Mosaic Covenant, the, the old covenant, Deuteronomy 28 is a good place to go. Those who walk in loving obedience with the Lord in the old covenant expect God's blessing. I will bless you in the land. Your wells will have lots of water. Your olive trees will bear lots of olives. And that's, Jesus is repeating that because that's the context in which he is saying this. Mosaic covenant is still functioning, right? You're supposed to say right, yeah, right? right? Okay. I mean, that Mosaic covenant is still functioning. That doesn't end until Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the new covenant is inaugurated. But anyway, so he's saying something that they would expect him to say, but he adds something that's not in the old covenant, also expect persecution. And then the promise of eternal life. So Jesus, Jesus is affirming at one level Peter's expectation when he said, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. And Peter says, good, expect God's blessing. But Peter also expect persecution. And Peter, there is the promise in the age to come, eternal life. So there are just, just three levels of response from Jesus that are painting the holistic, realistic picture. God will bless you, but you also are going to get lots of pushback, persecution. And of course, that's exactly what happens to Peter and the other disciples and so on. But then that promise in the age to come of eternal life. And then the Lord, then the Lord lays out a, a proverbial statement. 
he, he, he proclaims something here that is also upending their worldview, upending their presuppositions. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Contrary to your earthly expectations, your earthly presuppositions, that the wealthy and rich are the best and the brightest, and they will be closest to God in the eternal kingdom, Jesus says, not necessarily. Many who are first in this age will be last in the age to come. And those who are last in this age will be first in the kingdom of God. So God's evaluation of people is different than your evaluation of people in terms of their value, their worth, and what they will receive in the coming kingdom. So you kind of have, I, I, uh, I think often of a Sunday school teacher when I was really a little boy growing up and that Sunday school teacher taught, she was an incredible woman, taught faithful lessons using flannel graphs. None of you know what yeah, they are. Okay, flannel graphs. I mean, you have to really be old to know what a flannel graph is. But, so those of you who are nodding your head, you're telling me you're old. So anyway, but she, used to, but she was so engaging. She was just a fantastic teacher. And she made those flannel graph figures in the stories that she talked, told us about Daniel and the lines then, about Jacob at the ladder at Bethel, and of, of Abraham, and the day, I mean, it's on and on and on, all the stories. And then all the stories of Jesus and so on. She made it come alive. She did that, I think, something close to 50 years. And I think of another lady whose name was, was uh, 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 Eileen Coons, I think I was her name. She was a missionary to India for something like 55 years. She was in my home church back in Pennsylvania. And when, uh, oh, it was about seven or eight years ago when we made a trip back there, I, I got to see her. And she's retired. She's very old. I'm, I don't know. I'm pretty sure for now. She's probably with the Lord. She was in her 80s then. But anyway, you know what's really neat? She said, this is my ministry now. All the weddings in our church, this is my church back home, that one that ordained me. This, it's a large church, but she said, I every one of the weddings that's in our church, my gift to them, she puts it in a note, is, I pray, I commit to pray for you for the first year of your marriage. I will pray for you once a week for, for a year. That you will, I mean, just think of that. So her ministry, she can't physically be a missionary in India anymore, but she's continuing ministry. She's one of the, in this age, nobody knows about her. Nobody's ever heard of her. I mean, a few people in our church doing so on, but I mean, she's not well-known. She's not as well-known as Billy Graham. What Jesus is saying, she's going to be one of the first. I can tell you right, she's going to be a lot closer to the throne than I will be. Because her faithfulness and what the people she impacted, and even in these last days of her life, she's continuing. She can't do much physically, but she can pray. And I just thought that was so neat. She committed to pray for all the married couples for one year. That was her gift to them. Well, she didn't have any, you know, I don't think she had any money. Maybe she did, but I don't think she did. But So she couldn't afford any major. But that 
that's something she could do. And honestly, that's more eternally significant than giving them a $10 bill or a gift card or, you know, gift card to Target or something like that, starting a wedding. And just that's, I think, what Jesus is getting at here. Those who are really prominent, you think they're going to be the top dogs in the kingdom. No, not necessarily. In this age, the last, from your vantage point, how you're looking at the last, the Sunday school teachers that nobody knows about, but they do it for 45 years, they're going to be first in the coming kingdom. God upends things because his criterion is much different than ours in evaluating people's contribution to the kingdom. And so, again, it, it, it's really, this is a very important passage of Scripture for helping us to understand what is the Lord interested in for each one of us, regardless of your age, what you do, or anything? Faithfulness. Are you faithful in what God is calling you to do at this point in your life? That's what God is interested in. God's, and I know you understand me, you can't quantify faithfulness. You can't put a number to it. We in America, and, and you know, I'm, I very much think that way often too, but we want to quantify things. You know, we talk about strategic planning. We talk about metrics. What are the metrics you're using to measure whether you've accomplished this or not? Well, Jesus might be into that a little bit, but I think all he's primarily in, are you being faithful for what I've asked you to do? Are you a good steward of the gifts I've given you? That's what he's interested in. And so Jesus is upending their expectations here. And this would have been profound for these men to hear this, because nobody was teaching this in first century Judaism. Okay? Now, yeah, uh, go ahead, Fred. Um, I have a question. Uh, you know, I, I think of that word such as I have. I give on yes, yes. And that's what she had. But then, uh, can you explain the, the eye of the needle? I think a lot of people really don't, may not understand how difficult that was and what it was used for and so forth. Well, there is a a literal way to look at it, and then there's supposedly a metaphorical way to look at it. I look at it literally, that Jesus is just literally saying, you know, a camel uh, in the first, and to some extent still true in the Middle East. You see a lot of them when you go to the Middle East today, but a camel was the primary means of hauling uh, goods, you know what I mean, for over a long, uh, a long trek tra tra of, of merchant travel. And everybody knew it, but a camel is, is a big animal. It's a very hardy animal. It's a very mean animal. It's a very stubborn animal. I've ridden camels, and they are not, they are not nice. They don't like you getting on their back. They really don't. And they kind of, the most famous camel in the world is on the Mount of Olives. He, and I would always take people there, and there were always rides. For two bucks, you'd get a ride. He'd take you around a circle in the Mount of Olives. He's the most famous camel in the world. He's the most photographed camel in the world. There are probably hundreds of thousands of photographs of people riding this camel. But he was mean, and they, the guy who's his master is always, he would not get down, so he'd hit him on the back, then he'd get down. I probably saw him hit him on the back 25 times. Okay, now, a camel. Okay, everybody in the Middle East knew what a camel was. Everybody also knew the eye of a needle. Can this stubborn, big, huge, lumberly animal go through the eye of a needle? No, that's ridiculous. That's how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom if he depends on the, he or she depends on their wealth as the entrance of the kingdom. No. Now, 
Others also see it metaphorically, but I don't. I see it, Jesus just literally saying, as absurd as it is to think of this big, cumbersome animal going through this little eye of a needle. That's absolutely ridiculous. That's how difficult it is, a man who's depending on his wealth to get into the kingdom. Is there anything called the eye of the needle? There is. Yes, that was going to be my question as well. It could be. It could be, yeah. Yeah, that they may have may have may have made that connection too. Of course, now, Jesus is the eye of the That's right. He is our eye. We go through him. Russ, I think you have a question. Oh, I was just going to point out the same thing that there was an actual gate in Jerusalem that had a like a night entrance that was called the eye of the needle when it was very difficult to get through and i was wondering if it referred to that it could are you feeling all right russ i am Good. i'm feeling i'm feeling great because uh there we've got some resistance here as soon as i logged on to this thing again my entire internet went out and now it's back up so oh my goodness that's worse than being physically ill <laughs> There you go. Anything that keeps me away from God. Anyway. Verse 32. This is the third time, in terms of the Gospel of Mark, this is the third time Jesus tells of his coming uh, death, burial, and resurrection. What I want to do here is I want to I want you to see what he's adding. Starts in verse 32. It goes through verse 34. And as they were on the road, now go back to the beginning of chapter 10. We've studied that the last two weeks. Jesus is on the move. He's traveling from Galilee, and that map on page 7, I keep referring to that. But he's traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem, down to Judea. And he would be taking the king's highway, that highway that goes through on the east side of the Jordan River. So he's on the move. We're not exactly sure where he is, but he's on the move uh, and going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking ahead of them. Now, you wonder, why is Mark telling us that? Because that typically, in terms of the first century Judaism, rabbis would have their followers, their disciples, and that was kind of the way it was in that first century. And so the rabbis walked ahead of his students. So that Mark is just telling us Jesus is doing that. And those who followed him were afraid. Uh, okay, what are they afraid of? Well, the word there, we do get a word phobia from that, but they're processing what Jesus has been saying in that previous two things that we discussed last week and this week. They're processing all of that. So there's an awe to it, A-W-E. There's an awe to what Jesus is saying. There's a we are really having difficulty understanding everything Jesus is saying. And then there's also fear in the way in which you and I speak of fear. You're kind of cowering in fear of, of something that you don't understand. And so it's curious that, that Mark says it. Remember, Peter is the primary source of Mark in his gospel. So Peter would have shared this with Mark. And so Mark tries to capture their being perplexed, they're processing everything Jesus, they're trying to figure out everything Jesus is saying, and he chooses the word phobia, or it's a word from the word phobia. And so you just, we translate it fear. And talking 
to the and and taking the twelve again. So the language there is okay. They stop, and he begins to talk to them. He began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles." mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will arise. Now, I read the whole thing because in the previous two instances where Jesus summarizes what he's going to do, this is the most comprehensive. There are new elements. What's new? Delivered over. That should be translated, will be betrayed because it's prefiguring what Judas will do to the chief priests and scribes. Condemn him, that's your judicial term. That's a forensic term. He will be condemned to death. From the Jewish, the Sanhedrin will condemn him to death because he blasphemed God. He claimed to be God. Rome will execute Jesus because they say he commits sedition. So he will be judicially condemned by Jewish law, but the Jews couldn't execute. Rome will execute him for sedition. The next new piece of information are those cluster of phrases. Mock him, spit on him, flog him. He didn't mention that in the previous two. So Jesus is now giving a precise and comprehensive prediction of what's going to happen to him in a few months. We're not down to years, we're down to a month and a half to two months, maybe less, maybe weeks. It's really hard to get a tight chronology here, but this is, this is, the, this is the specific context and summary of what's going to happen to me. Now, you're, you're a disciple, and you're hearing Jesus say this, as you're making your way from Galilee, climbing up, Jerusalem's 2,500 feet above sea level, so you're going up. And so they're not yet starting the up. We'll, I'll, you'll see that in the next section. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But they're still a considerable distance from Jerusalem. I'm not exactly sure where you are, where you are. But just you're trying to hear, process, think about all that Jesus just said. I think these guys found that incomprehensible. What? Okay, Jesus, you've been telling. Now you're telling us you're gonna. They're gonna mock you. You're gonna be spit upon. You're gonna be flogged. Jesus. But you know what? That's not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about what he had said to them just a little bit ago. We're talking about the kingdom. We're talking about the first being last. Peter say, we've left everything, followed you, and all that stuff. There's the thing about that. So it's almost as if they hear what Jesus is saying, and they say, oh, because the next verse, that's not what they're thinking about. This is, this is astonishing, really, because you and I know what's going to happen. You know exactly where this is going to lead. And here's these guys, and James and John, I'm in verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, We've been introduced to them before you know who they are, came up to him and said, Teacher, Rabbi, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
Now this is two disciples asking Jesus, and they're setting up their request with this broad-based request. It's almost like saying, Jesus, anything we ask of you, we'd be willing to do it. Whatever we ask. It's, yeah, it's, well, I know, but this is open-ended. You know, there's no boundaries, no barriers. It's open-ended. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Now, if you go to Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, their mother, whose name's Salome, is actually the one who asked this. James and John said, Mom, look, Mom, go ask Jesus this. And of course, being a good mom who loves her sons, who wants the best for her sons, goes up to Jesus and asks this. Mark gives us, and again, Peter probably explained this to him, Mark gives us the focal point is this is what James and John wanted. And so Salome, their mom, which, by the way, tells us that those who are following Jesus from Galilee down to Judea, ultimately to Jerusalem, are not just the 12. There's a large group of people following Jesus, and one of them is their mother, Salome. I mean, I just don't miss that. I mean, it's kind of, we're going to talk more about that when we get to the triumphal entry in just a little bit. But anyway, so, I mean... <laughs> Now, again, I'm sure you've studied this before. This is probably the first time you've ever seen this dialogue. But remember, this is on the heels of Jesus t just telling them, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be judicially condemned. I'm going to be mocked, spit, flogged, and killed. And then I'll rise again. I mean, that's profound, earth-shaking truth. What are they thinking about? Their position in the kingdom. Well, and Jim, yes. Just before that, he he started. He gave that lesson on humility, and here they're asking this as well. That's yes. I mean, can you imagine going to your boss? Hey, boss, whatever I ask you, say yes. Yes. I mean, yeah. Really? <laughs> I love that. Well, he, Glenn just said, and that is keying in on what they had said in verse thirty-five—a very open-ended type of request, very open-ended kind of question, and so. Jesus said, what do you want? So, I mean, they are, they are, it's like they asked permission. Permission's been granted. Now they say, okay, Lord. <laughs> but I mean, isn't, it is amazing, but they're processing being with Jesus almost three years. They've heard him talk about the kingdom. They've heard him talk about the promise. They've heard him, he just was talking about who's going to populate the kingdom. And so they're thinking, he also said that those who follow me are going to be blessed in this age and in the eternal kingdom coming. Here's our blessing. We want to be on your right and left hand. We want to be in those positions of promise, right next to your throne when you set up your throne to rule and reign. So in that context, they're part of the inner circle. They're kind of the favored, you know, Peter, James, John, they're the inner circle three. Well, this is legitimate. And Jesus doesn't rail against them. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. 
Jesus doesn't say, how can you guys be thinking about this when I just told you what's going to happen to me? He doesn't do any of that. As is always the case, this is a teachable moment, and that's what Jesus is going to use it for. Um, where did, when Jesus had concluded his work on earth, he sat down. And where did he sit in relationship to God? And where would that have put the disciples? Well, Jesus, it's the right hand of the Father, of course, when he finishes his work. So, and so on, on the left and on the right, one of them would have been sitting on God's lap. Is that? Well, now you have to remember that this. When Jesus goes back to the Father and sits down at the right hand, this is the throne room in heaven. The throne of Jesus, when he rules on earth, will be in Jerusalem. It will be a physical throne. So someone will be able to sit on his right, and someone will be able to sit on his left. That's how they're thinking about it. It's, you know, what, based on Revelation 20, is the millennial kingdom of Jesus, where he will rule and reign for a thousand years. So, I mean, that's, that's what Jesus was talking about. And that's what they're asking about. Not the eternal kingdom, like in Revelation 4 and 5, we're in the throne room of heaven. This is the physical kingdom that Jesus will establish. Matthew 25, 15 talks about it that way. And that's how they're thinking about that. When you will in Jechariah chapter 14 and 12, 12 and 14 talks about this. And that's how they're thinking about it. Oh, good. When you set up your earthly kingdom, we want to rule with you, right next to you. And so long had that. So the Lord's response to this, it illustrates his compassion, his understanding, and his, this is a teachable moment. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. And in a sense, that's true. It's selfish, self-centered, but Jesus is broadening this. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we're able. All right, now let's take this apart. When Jesus says, are you willing to drink the cup? Now, in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, cup is a symbol of judgment, Cup is a symbol. It's numerous times in the Old Testament. It's associated with the cup of God's wrath. So when Jesus says, are you able to drink of the cup that I must drink? You remember, we're going to read about this later on here in chapter 14. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane hours before he's going to be executed. And he's, remember what his prayer is? among many other things, Father, is it possible for this cup to pass from me? Is that possible? Isn't there another way we can do this? And the cup there is a metaphor for the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 53 tells us that that's a prophecy of the the coming Messiah who will die for his people and all that. It tells us that God will pour out his wrath on his son. So this is the cup of God's wrath. And that's what Jesus is saying. Are you willing to drink of this? Because before I can rule and reign, this is what has to happen to me. That's what I was just telling you guys about. Are you willing to do this? And then are you willing to be baptized? Now, 
I keep reminding you of this, but you have to keep your focus. He is not talking about the ordinance of baptism. Baptizo, the Greek verb, baptizo means to be identified with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul is writing, he says, ancient Israel was baptized with Moses in the wilderness. And you think, what? <laughs> what does that mean? There's any water in the wilderness. What does that mean? They are identified with Moses. They're following Moses. He's a deliverer. He's a lawgiver. He's leading them through the wilderness wonders of 40 years, etc. So that's what Jesus is saying, to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. Are you willing to be identified with me in what I'm supposed to go, about to go through? My suffering, my horrible death, are you willing to identify with me in that? Drink the cup of God's wrath and be identified with the suffering and death I'm about to experience. That's what Jesus means by this. And with incredible audacity, they respond, we're able. <laughs> they clearly don't understand what he's saying. They're just impulsively responding, we're able. And Jesus says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I'm baptized, you will. You will suffer for my name. You will experience horrific persecution. You will experience the suffering. You will suffer me. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, both of those verbs are in the passive voice, which means it's God the Father who's acting on that verb. It's God the Father who decides this. And he has already determined who's going to sit. I can't tell you. I can't grant that to you. It's the Father's business. And again, here is that, that important, important understanding of the Trinity. God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally, Father, Son, and Spirit, and differ functionally. This is that functional responsibility. That's what the Father does. I don't have that authority. And so, I mean, it's the only way that makes sense. And that, obviously, I think you understand that. And then, understandably, verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why were they indignant? Because they didn't think of asking it first. I mean, that's, it's, it's an indignance that's sourced in jealousy. It's an indignancy. An indignancy, is that a word? It's, you're indignant at, I am so sorry that I didn't think of asking that first. And I sort of suspect Peter might have, might have been the first one saying that. Okay, now, I, I, I want to look at verse 42 and following, because here's another incredibly, very decisive, teachable moment that Jesus focuses on. But are there any questions on that material from verse 35 through verse 41? And then I want to uh, get into 42 to the end of the paragraph. Okay. When you make summary, a summary statement of, of this ambition and the disciples and us for today, as far as how we need to relate to Christ. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing your word, but I'm not sure I'm understanding your question. I mean, how are we to think about Christ and our role in relationship to Him? In the coming kingdom? 
Are you, are you mean, or are you mean now? What we go through here on earth, oh. what we can expect from him once we are with him. Okay. Well, I mean, in a, in a sense, uh, what the Lord is saying to to uh, James and John, that one of one of the things we should expect is pushback from the world, pushback and persecution, perhaps, as we stand for Christ, as we represent Christ, and so on. I mean, in the first century with these guys, I mean, they're facing physical harm and martyrdom. In the United States right now, that's probably not going to happen, it, at least not, not, not right now. But in other parts of the world, it is happening. There have been more martyrs in the 20th and 21st century than all of the church history before that. So we do have lots of people who are experiencing that. And I think it is it kind of in a way it distills down to, as you represent Christ, expect pushback, expect persecution. It may not be the physical trick you were going out and taking the square and flogged, but you may be ostracized, you may be mocked, you may be made fun of, and, and all that can go along with that. And certain people standing for certain things for the Lord can lose a job, lose position, and so on. But what Jesus promised, and we saw that in the previous paragraph, and we can reiterate it again, something the Apostle Paul really makes a big deal of in the book of Galatians, the book of Romans. We will rule and reign with Christ. The little phrase he uses, we're joint heirs with Christ. So in his coming kingdom, which I understand to be the thousand-year reign that Revelation 20 talks about, that thousand-year reign, we will rule and reign with Jesus. I've already been talking to the Lord about the little part of earth I'd like to rule on. It's Bavaria in south, southeastern Germany, which, oh, if you've ever been there, some of the most glorious real estate on earth. It's never hot. There wouldn't have days like this in Bavaria. It's just gorgeous all year round in the winter. Oh, it's wonderful. But that's selfish, self-centered, but that's how I'd answer your question. Does that kind of get to it? All right. Were there any, I think, on, on the line here? Is everybody with me? I just want to make a comment, uh, Jim. Yes. So when Jesus was riding on the donkey and he was coming down, everybody and their brother was saying, that's, yes, that's my God. That's, that's the King. But then when he turned himself in, uh, you know, many people just, Oh, that's well, that's not what I wanted. So when I look at that, I think, okay, well, Jesus came, he did come to establish a kingdom, but he came to establish a kingdom in our hearts. And everybody wanted him to just take over, right? Am I getting that right? Well, yeah, I think the expectation in the first century uh, among the, the Jewish people, the expectation was a political messiah, uh, one who would liberate them for the oppression of Rome. And, and you know, Rome had made Judea a Roman province and all that stuff. Roman general there, Roman governor there, all that stuff was part of what they was a day-to-day -day experience. And I think that expectation was not met. And even when they are welcoming him in the triumphal entry, which you were referring to there a moment ago, in that triumphal entry, some of those people have that expectation. Uh, because Hosanna is one of the things they exclaim. Hosanna is Hebrew, which means Lord save us. Yah, Shana, Yah is Ho, Hosanna. Yahweh save us. And then, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting from an Old Testament psalm, one of the ascent psalms. And all that is, that's filled with kind of messianic expectation, but it, it's probably not the messianic expectation. You're about to go to the cross and die for us by shedding your blood on, sin, uh, on the cross for our sin. 
Right. Their expectation was you're going to liberate us from Rome. And so that, that the, the, the kingdom of God has, has facets to it. It's a spiritual kingdom. Paul talks about that in Romans 14. And it's God's transformational work in our life through his spirit where we become more and more like our king. We're being transformed in the image of God. But there's also political and physical dimension to it. And that is all wrapped around God uh, through the Lord Jesus fulfilling his covenantal promises to Israel, the Abrahamic covenant, the Vedic covenant, and so on, where Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years to fulfill those covenant promises. So it's got a spiritual dimension to it, and it's got a physical, geographical, political dimension to it. Okay. Jesus fulfills both of those. Phase one, in his first advent, he begins to fulfill that first part, the spiritual transformation of his citizens. Then he will fulfill the second advent, the geographical and political and physical dimensions of it, when he sets up his rule, as Zechariah says in chapter 14, to rule in Jerusalem. Amen. Okay. A thousand years. Thank you, sir. You bet. All right, now let's look at, starting in verse 42, Jesus, again, as he's just so masterful at this, he's such a great teacher. He notices now another teachable moment. And Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, and that would mean the political rulers of the Gentiles, Rome, he could have Rome in mind here because they were the political entity of the first century in the Mediterranean world. Lord it over them. Their rule is dictatorial. Their rule is tyrannical. Their rule is filled with terror. That's how Rome ruled. They created terror and fear. And as long as you obeyed the rules, you were fine. You step out of line, they're going to crush you. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus has just described the typical way in which the first century looked at political rule. But it shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you must first be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Now, I want you to notice, you ought to maybe underline those two words, because at the end of verse 43, Jesus uses the word servant. That's, that's diakonos. We get a word deacon from that. One who serves, who waits at tables, a servant. And then the second word that's in verse 44 is slaves. Different word. It's doulos, which is the t normal Greek word for a bond servant, a slave. So Jesus is using two extraordinary words to define what he means by leadership. And he is upending the total expectation and total understanding of what it means to rule, what it means to lead. Your Gentile model of leadership is Rome. They rule the world. My view of leadership is a diakonos, and a doulos, a servant who waits on tables, and a slave. That's my, so we call this servant leadership. Jesus is saying to lead is to serve, to serve is to lead. Who is our model? 
verse 45, Jesus, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a lutron, a ransom for many. Now, we, we really have to unpack this. What time is it? Oh, we're good. We're good. We have to unpack verse, 40, verse 45. I already commented on the two words, servant and slave. Now, verse 45, son of man. Son of man, you, you should know this, is Daniel 7.13. That's Jesus' favorite title of himself. He constantly uses that for himself, and that's Son of Man is the Messianic. It's the, it's the Messiah, one like the Son of Man comes up in the Ancient of Days, receives dominion, receives authority. That's Daniel 7, 13. So he, uses, he chooses to use that. And so Son of Man is the title associated with Messianic kingship, one who receives dominion, authority, and the right to rule. Okay, that's, that's me, or more grammatically correct, that is I. So the Son of Man, how does the Son of Man rule? He comes to, not to be served, but to serve. To lead is to serve, to serve is to lead. And the example of that, the apex of that, the epitome of that is, he gives his life as a lutron, a ransom. A lutron is the price that we be paid to release someone from bondage. The price that would be paid to release someone from bondage. I give my life as a lutron. I'm paying the price to release you from bondage. Now, you have to put that together in terms of the whole, whole scope of the Bible. Bondage to what? Bondage to sin, bondage to death, bondage to Satan. They're all our enemies. Jesus frees us from that because he buys us. What's the price? His shed blood. 1 Corinthians 6.19. And so, I mean, this is it's an extraordinary statement filled with theological truth, deep theological truth. The Son of Man, that's a messianic title. That's the title of the coming king. That's a messianic reference. How does the Messiah rule? I did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. And I am going to give my life as a lutron. For, the word for there has... It's a preposition has the idea of in place of, instead of, many. Not all, but many. And so you have this voluntary, sacrificially, vicariously, obediently, the Son of Man becomes a lutron for humanity the epitome of a servant leader. And again, I, I repeat this about the fourth time now. Son of Man is a messianic title rooted in Daniel 7.13. How, and it's all about Messiah ruling, having dominion, authority, kingdom, all that stuff, fulfilling Davidic covenant. And you have this, okay, what kind of ruler is he? One who serves. And my first act of service is, I am going to purchase you out of your bondage to sin, bondage to death, bondage to Satan. I will pay the price for you. I will free you. See, they wanted political freedom. First century. Jesus is freeing them from the bondage to sin, death, and Satan. 
which is a far deeper freedom than freedom from Rome. He will eventually free from all political oppression when he rules and reigns. And so this is just, this is really, really a remarkable passage. It is the key passage on, in, the, in the New Testament, the key passage on what does it mean to be a servant leader? One, one who does not lord it over people, doesn't hammer people into submission. Okay, I, okay, I got that. I can write that in a nice definition. All right, let's talk about a higher level of this. Let's look at Jesus. Jesus is the model servant leader. And this extraordinary expression of that in verse 45 is, we just know to read this over and over and over and over and over again. Wow. The messianic king, the Lord of the universe, Daniel 7, 13, this is how he ruled. He serves. Well, Jim, it's Woody. Yes, Woody. Is it kind of like uh, he, the son of man, uh, you know, he had his service is what he's providing and and he's actually dying for our sins, right? The yes, last time you referred to is, is he's dying. Woody, I'm really having a little trouble hearing you. Can you? I don't know. <laughs> he's one of the services that he's providing is dying for our sins. That's right. Yeah, that's what that's. I just wanted to reinforce that. that no, you're right, Woody. That's the ransom that's being paid. The the fundamental bedrock element or content of Jesus serving from this verse is his willingness to die in our place. That's what that little preposition for many instead of us in our place. And he he purchases that, he buys that, he pays the bondage price for that, and, and Paul talks about it in this way, by shedding his blood. The price that he pays is the shedding of his blood. So and Jim, right. so does that also include the curse, any curse behind that, and sin and curse? Well, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, he becoming, I mean, there are so many there are so many expressions of what he does, and you're picking up, picking up on one that Paul uses in the book of Galatians. He becomes a curse for us. And Paul quotes from Deuteronomy, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Yes. Another element of that, as you were correctly saying, uh, Fidel, is that he becomes a, he takes that curse for us. I mean, that's, that too, I mean, it's just, it's almost unfathomable all that Jesus does for us in his uh, death, burial, and resurrection. And there are just lots of references to it from different vantage points throughout the scripture. And uh, you, what he cited one, uh, you've cited another one. All that is involved in G what Jesus accomplished for us in dying on the cross for us. And then, is, that, is that just like somebody saying, well, you're just going to be an XYZ, just like your father, blah, blah, blah. But Jesus comes and he, hey, you know what? I'm here to free you from the bondage and the curse behind that. Yes, that's right. I mean, that, that's a cultural example that uh, is often used. Uh, yes, uh, you're, you're just like your dad. You're, you're just like your parents, as you just said. What happened to him or happened to her is exactly what's going to happen to you. And Jesus breaks that curse because that is true for all of us. We are just like our parents in this way. We're sinners. Yes, sir. Praise the Lord. 
all sinners. And in that sense, we are just like our parents. But Jesus breaks that curse. Amen. Yeah. And that again, I mean, this, this, that little word lutron, which is not the normal word for, for ransom in the New Testament. So Mark's using something unique here, but that is a, an incredible word. And that's why I tried to really emphasize that. And hopefully I succeeded here as we talked about it and what Jesus uh, is really saying to these disciples. And then for you and me, as we unpack all of this in light of all the New Testament teaching about Christ, what he did for us on Calvary's cross is truly, truly magnificent, marvelous, fantastic. And it's what should lead us to praise him every day that we draw breath. Because in eternity, we will be praising for it too. All right, everybody with me? You got it? Yes. Ready to take the quiz? Take out a half a sheet of paper. Well, you guys are really taking me seriously, aren't you? You know, you know I'm not telling you the truth. Well, listen. You sure? 20 minutes of one, I need to, to leave and get on to my next. Now, listen, next week, we're going to continue with Jesus on the journey to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice as we move into verse 46, he comes to Jericho. Jesus has now crossed the Jordan River. He's come off the King's Highway. Now he's going to start taking the road from Jericho, which is about 150 feet below sea level, to Jerusalem, which is 2,500 feet above sea level. That is a steep walk. That's why they go up to Jerusalem. And as soon as he's at Jericho, something happens. It's an incredible miracle about a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And if you want to know what happens, come back next week. All right? I'm going to pray, and I'll let you guys go, and I'll see you next Wednesday. Father, thank you for the Word of God, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, which is the, is the revelation, the verbal revelation of you through your Holy Spirit who inspired the writers to us as human beings. We are studying the Gospel of Mark, which gives us detailed accounts short, synoptic, brief, almost pithy uh, accounts of Jesus' public ministry. And we, we've seen this really astonishing passage on what Jesus means by servant leadership. Not like Rome, not like political rulers, like the rulers we're used to, even in our, in our president, our Congress, the kind of rulers we think about. That's not Jesus. The model of Scripture is a servant leadership. To lead is to serve, to serve is to lead. And Jesus is the model of that. He gave himself for us. He paid that lutron, that ransom, so that we can be free from bondage to sin, to death, and to Satan. Thank you, Jesus, for freeing us. As we put our faith in you, we experience that liberation, that freedom to be all that you want us to be. And these fantastic promises of what it will be like in the coming kingdom and then ultimately in the new heaven and new earth for all eternity. We bless your name for what you've done for us. As we go our separate ways, dismiss us with your blessing. Help us to be loyal to you, to be representatives of you as your salt and your light in this dark world. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Amen.